Welcome to the Artistic Foodies, the show that explores life through the lens of art and food. I'm Abbas Muhammad. And I'm Irfan Raidan. And today we're talking about Star Wars, Islam, and bone broth. On this episode, it is our honor to host film critic and podcaster Zaki Hassan, the founder of Nostalgic Remembrance and artistic scholar Dr. Ali Hossein, and Mirchi Cafe founder and owner Chef Lisa Ahmed. I also have the top secret recipe for the special Baba Shams bone broth blend for you at the end of the show. So make sure you listen all the way through for that recipe. Our first guest, Zaki Hassan, is a media scholar and critic and a member of the San Francisco Film Critics Circle. He is co-host of the Movie Film Podcast and a huge Star Wars fan. Zaki, we would love to hear a little bit about how you got into film, and then we can dig into the juicy details of the Star Wars universe. I've been very fortunate in that I've been a media professional for 25 years at this point. I mean, right out of high school, I was able to get a job at a community newspaper when I was in community college. And so I got firsthand experience with film criticism. And from there, that made me want to pursue an education in film production with an eye towards, if not seeking, you know, a profession making films being better equipped to to um, critique them so I went to Columbia College in Chicago which is the largest film school in the Midwest you know I got a real firsthand account of the work that goes into getting something made and that was really enlightening for me you know I'm I'm somebody who I you know I like your big blockbuster films but I also like smaller independent movies so seeing the entirety of the production process from concept to completion and having to carry productions through that was really helpful in terms of expanding my own experience. And, uh, you know, ever since then I, I, I've worked on, on, you know, smaller productions with, with my, with my partners and, you know, they've gone on to work regularly in the industry. You know, my, my, my one um, colleague, Sean Coyle, he's an executive producer at Disney. He, he produces a show there called Puppy Dog Pals. My other partner, Brian Hall, is is a writer for various animated shows. He worked on Bob's Burgers, you know. So for me, it's been great to see their, uh, uh, you know, professional lives extend in that direction. And I've been very fortunate from my end in the Bay Area where, uh, I've been able to expand my reach as a writer, which is something I always enjoy. You know, I like being a journalist. I like being a media critic. Uh, that's very much where my interests have gone towards. So it's I'm I'm grateful for having had the whole the whole spectrum of experience. Uh, yeah, so just I mean, just talking about Star Wars in in my own life, I, I above and beyond its impact on me as a film student or as a, as a media professional. I mean, I can't separate. Star Wars from from my life going all the way back to when I was a little kid. Uh, I was I was born a Star Wars fan because you know I was born in '79. The film came out in '77. My my brother is five years older than me, so you know it's kind of like you know my first words were Mama, Baba, Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader. <laughs> that was it. You know I I remember very distinctly. Uh, you know my brother got like Empire Strikes Back action figures for his, you know, whatever his sixth birthday it was. And, um, I, you know, him going to school and me just kind of <laughs> mangling his toys and whatnot. So, you know, in 1997, the films will be released for the 20th anniversary. 
And, you know, from then to now, Star Wars has always been sort of part of the pop culture. But we forget that there was a period there from like 85 to to 95 where Star Wars was just like gone. Like it was not part of the cultural conversation. I mean, they'd started coming out novels again in the early 90s. But it was, you know, now it's just ubiquitous. It wasn't that way. Um, so, so for me, above, like I said, above and beyond as like a film student, it was just always a, a part of my life, you know? And so for me, like now as a parent, one of the joys of, of being a parent for me with, with all these kids is I get to experience it through them. And it, it totally changes my perception. And I think that's why I'm just more easygoing when it comes to, you know, I see people argue online about, oh, this, like, is this canon? And is that, does that count or whatever? And um, for me, it's just, it's all Star Wars. It's fun, you know? What order Star Wars came into your life? Did you watch it chronologically? You said you were born in 79. The first one came out in 77. Was it four, five, six, one, two, three, seven, eight, nine for you? That's exactly right. Release order. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for me, you know, Star Wars is always three movies with a beginning, middle and end. So when those prequels came along, I went through my own sort of journey of, uh, of acceptance with them because I, you know, I was, uh, what was I? I was, uh, I was 19 when Phantom Menace came out and I was pretty negative about it. Just like most people my age, you know, and it, <laughs> You know, and and so I always kind of for me, it was like, well, there's the three Star Wars movies and then there's those other ones. That was always me. And and truthfully, I mean, it really it took going back to what I said earlier, it took watching them with my kids and realizing like, man, they're not getting lost in all the the nerdy stuff. They love Jar Jar Binks. And, you know, like sort of. And and, and, right. So at that point, I had to be like, you know, uh, my Star Wars is always like I'll always plug into it in terms of those three movies but that doesn't make anyone else's experience less valid. You know, you got plenty of people who came in with the prequels and that is their egress into this universe. And the same thing's going to happen with these new movies that everyone complains about. Like it's, it's this, you know, I say this all the time online, but I'm like, it's a big fridge. There's plenty of ice cream for everybody. Just because you don't like this flavor doesn't mean you can't like that. <laughs> See, this is a unifying voice we need in America right now. <laughs> I, you know, I, and I love your perspective on it because I, so I was born in 91. My first Star Wars movie was Phantom Menace in 99. And uh, I was living in Saudi at the time. I was living in Riyadh. And uh, so it took a little bit of time for the movies to eventually get to where we could access it. So I still remember, you know, it was a, it was a DVD and we put it and watched it on the computer. And I must have been like 10 or 11 years old. And I mean, I was just I, I love Jar Jar Binks. I thought he was the funniest thing in the world. Yeah. Um, and so sort of like coming back to it decades later and realizing all the hate that people had for him, I was just, uh, I was very shocked and surprised to say the least. It's, that's, I mean, what you're saying, that that's what's so instructive about this is, is when, what we tend to do, right, just as human beings, we define normal by us. We're like, this is me, this is my experience, this is what I like, therefore anybody else who has a different point of view is wrong, right? Exactly. And, and especially when it comes to pop culture, I'm always like, well, like, first of all, you can't like hate a movie. You can dislike it and just be like, well, I will never watch that again. But people are like, I hate that. It, it offends <laughs> me. 
you know, I like the Delta Force offends me, right, as a Muslim. But I'm like, if you're a Star Wars fan, you just say, all right, well, f- watch the thing you like, you know. And, you know, a couple of years, this is relevant, you know, a couple of years ago, um, uh, I had the opportunity to interview Ewan McGregor, who, who of course, played Obi-Wan wow. Kenobi. And, and I told him this story, which is, I think is so apt, you know, I, I, I had been reading uh, a Star Wars storybook to my kids, and there was a picture of of Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan Kenobi, and, and my kid says, oh, that's, you know, he was probably like five or six. He says, oh, that's Obi-Wan Kenobi. And then there was a picture of Alec Guinness as Obi-Wan Kenobi. He says, oh, that's old Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> right? And and for, I thought that was interesting because my perspective, and I'm sure if I can relate to this, is, well, Alec Guinness is Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah. And Ewan McGregor is young He's Young, Obi-Wan exactly. I feel like this, you know, you're talking about like this generational thing. Now when I look at 79, I know when this when when uh, the seventh movie came out, I got all dressed up. I had, <laughs> I, I had a Chewbacca onesie on that I bought from Target specifically for it. You know, went into the movie movie theater didn't read anything about it until I watched it and then I watched it and except for a few little bit of nostalgic moments you know I was caught up in the moment but after leaving I realized that I actually hated the movie mm, this is Force yeah. Awakens <laughs> yeah 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 exactly uh, oh. Um, the only force that was awakening in me was like, why did I just waste my time like that? They had a little <laughs> bit of a nostalgic factor, but it was a recycled plot. Um, yep. And so now yep. when I look at seven, eight, nine, I, I can kind of understand what sort of the generation before me feels like when they look at one, two, three, when they look at Phantom Menace and they're like, oh, this That's is terrible. True. So and, and what I would say is wait, wait. 15 years and just see what the kids of today think about <laughs> Star Wars in general. Is it Luke Skywalker's film or is it Anakin Skywalker's film? Um, do you mean the original, like episode four, you mean? Just, I mean, like Star Wars to you, Star Wars as this sort of like concept. It It is a story of a family. So, so to me, the comparison I would draw is, you know, it's like a, a novels by James Michener, or even, you know, when you look at something like roots, I mean, you're following it's, 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 it's this universe, but your various characters move in and off of the stage. It's so Skywalker I, family. Skywalker. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I think Disney now calls these nine movies, the Skywalker saga. I think that's a good way of sort of put, you know, you're able to sort of put, put these nine behind glass while still continuing the, right. the, the series. You know, I, I believe there's going to be an episode 10, 11, 12 at some point, but, but what you're able to see with these nine movies, warts and all, cause you know, some are better than others, but you see this journey uh, with this family, which I think is really cool. When you get to go from Anakin to Ben Solo and anything yeah. in between, I think, I think it's honestly, I'll tell you, and I, I, I'm confident history will bear me out. The more time passes, people really appreciate this saga of this family. I truly believe that. I think, I think all the, the, the slings and arrows people shoot at either the prequels or the sequels. Uh, I, a lot of that stuff is going to fall aside once people say, once you separate out like the, the passion of the moment and just watch, watch them as a, as a nine part story. So, you know, regardless of age groups, regardless of cultural backgrounds and even gender, it's not like a chick flick or like a, you know, a bro film. Why do you think Star Wars has such a universal appeal? It's not explicitly about, you know, uh, an American worldview. It's not American imperialism. 
no pun intended. Um, and if anything, you know, the, the, the central idea of a group of resistance fighters who are against fascism, well, that's something that anyone anywhere can relate to. Uh, you know, it's it's a basic good versus evil. And we're just talking about the, the, the original three movies. It's a very basic good versus evil story that it's, whether you're a little kid or whether you're young at heart, you can buy into that. You know, you can project yourself onto Luke Skywalker. Uh, the idea that, oh, I have unfulfilled dreams. I just, I just, I, I want to make something of myself. I mean, I mean, who doesn't feel that? Who doesn't have that longing? I mean, when you look at how the force is described, right, it's, it's it's an energy field that surrounds us. It binds us. It's uh, you know it's generated by life. I think that's what Yoda says, right? It's it's uh, it's a very it's like a catch as catch can kind of spiritual view, right? It's like spirituality without explicitly having to lock yourself in to to a, a specific deity or anything like that. And so, I mean, again, the guy was smart. He figured out here's a thing that like everybody, no matter which faith system they 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 um, ascribe to, uh, they can plug into. Right, we can, regardless of, of whether you're Christian, Buddhist, you name it, you can hear about the force and be like, yeah, I, I get that. Speaking of the language and words used, there's uh, for example, my son. His name is Mustafa, and you know, obviously in Arabic, that means the chosen one. And Darth Vader, he's lives on the planet Mustafar, right? It's pretty, it's pretty blatant <laughs> there. And then there's in the Rogue One, there's the, the planet of Jeddah. It's a holy, yeah. the holy city, and the, so there's a lot of. Uh, and, and the filmmaker said that that was by design. They used that name very specifically. Yeah, yeah definitely. So. And then, so there's a lot of elements um, of uh, Islam and Arabic. Uh, language and, and Muslims in the Star Wars. I think everybody uh, who um, is Muslim can see that. And like you said, there's influences from a lot of different uh, cultures and um, religions. And that's one reason why it has a universal appeal because everybody has some uh, connection to it, whether it's in their language or their culture or their religion. So that's one of the universal aspects of the Star Wars series. We wanted to get a little deeper into the spiritual aspects of the Star Wars universe, and we were lucky to have a chance to sit with Dr. Ali Hussein, an artist, author, and a scholar who spends a lot of time thinking and writing about the spirituality of sci-fi and video games. Dr. Ali, welcome. We would love to start by talking about the spiritual aspects of the Force first, and then we can explore some of the moral questions that arise in our experience of Star Wars. So what exactly is the Force? The Force is faith. Um, and Yoda is, 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 is the Sheikh. And Luke is the Seeker. And all of these are valid. But what is it about the Force being everywhere? Right? Um, it's all around us. As Yoda tells Luke in Episode 5, um, uh, in that famous, famous scene, where he's trying to train Luke to pull out his ship from the swamp and Luke is unable to. And then uh, uh, and he says, it is so big. And Luke, he says, and Yoda says, size matters not. Look at me, the, you know, the, does my size matter? Whereas my ally is the force. It's all around us in the trees and the rocks. And then at the end, when Yoda pulls out the ship, 
um, uh, Luke says, I don't believe it. And Yoda says, that is why you fail. Um, so I think if we say, for example, that the force is faith, then we have to, I think Star Wars makes us ask the question of our own faith. Do we really feel as though our faith is all around us? You have Tashbih which is all about establishing God's similarity with the world or his presence with the world in the sense which is the foundation in the verse of the Quran, وَهُوَ مَعَكُمْ أَيْنَمَا كُنْتُمْ He is with you wherever you are. Or فَأَيْنَمَا تُوَلُّوا فَثَمَّ وَجْهُ اللَّهُ Wherever you turn, there is the face of God. That essentially is what Yoda was saying about the force. The force is all around us. So if you look at the tree, there is the force. And the Qur'an is saying, if you look at the tree, there is the countenance of God. If you know how to look. If you know how to look. Now, the thing is, is that understanding of Tawheed, which is that truth in the highest sense, oneness, divinity in the highest sense is all around us. That is actually not a very monotheistic understanding of a personal God. And it's more like, Confucianist, um, far Asian um, um, uh, 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 understanding. But, you know, Professor Sachiko Murata, the wife of Professor William Chittick, she wrote a book called Sufi Gleams in Chinese Light, where she um, showed how two Chinese Muslim scholars, Liu Ji and Wang Taiyu, they adopted Ibn Arabi's teachings through a Persian poet from the school of Ibn Arabi, Abdurrahman Jami. And they they took the commentary of Abdurrahman Jami on the Fusus, Vessels of Wisdom, Ibn Arabi's Fusus, um, in Persian because they didn't know Arabic. And they took that writing and they were able to create a new Confucianist Islam based on Ibn Arabi's metaphysics and based on this idea of Tawheed of Tashbih, where God appears to be one with the universe. Star Wars begs a lot of questions from us as people of religion. And this is one of them. If you're going to say that faith is the force, then explain how the faith is all around you. And how do you, what, what, what ramifications does that have on justice? You know, that's a huge question. Um, and, and also in Tashbih, you know, what does it mean? How do you deal with, with, with tyrants and dictators and Darth Vader's and Palpatine's, if you, and, and Yoda acknowledges that, that they're part of the force. They're ultimately part of the force. There's no good or bad per se. And the deeper you go into the Star Wars universe, the more you see it. I mean, even just taking to the first six, the Jedi, especially I think you watch one, two, three, you can see how Anakin gets... Um, essentially his trust broken multiple times, how he uh, voices real concerns that we can identify with in our lives and gets dismissed again and again and again and finally gets validated. And so you could argue, you know, that ultimately the Jedi Order became this very um, oppressive and greedy in their own way order. And that ultimately led to their demise, that their own arrogance and greed led to their own demise. Um, and yet these are supposed to be the good guys. Yeah. So on the other hand, you have the quote unquote bad guys, the, the dark side of the fourth, the Sith. And yet what he's offering to Anakin is, listen, like family is important. 
and I and I see that you see that and love is important. And I'm going to actually help you sustain your family and to feed your love. And ultimately, the Jedi were saying, you know, you know, love is an attachment, like complete extreme zuhud, you know. Um, they became religious fanatics, I think, yes. at the end. And, and ultimately, I think as um, Rian Johnson, um, although he, he was criti criticized for what he did in The Last Jedi, um, I think it sort of that episode brings to to a climax the big question behind um, what happened in the prequels, which is what happens when a tradition becomes stifled by dogma, mm -hmm. right? And, and is unable to adapt to um, the world around it. I mean, the big big elephant in the room in episodes one through three is how was Palpatine able to um, to deceive the highest ranking Jedis in the council who came into his office every single day and they could not tell that this is the this is the Sith Lord. I mean mm -hmm. I just recently read an article that they could have even figured it out from his decor. From his color choice, he had reds and blacks and like and like uh, uh, like devil statues all over the office. I mean, come on, what more? What more? His his robes were black and red. What more did you did you want in order to get a hint that something was was weird? But I think I think the powerful thing here is that Palpatine is perhaps best described by the verse in the Quran where Shaitan says on the Day of Judgment. Do not blame me, only blame yourselves. I had no power over you except I called you and you responded to me. And I think that the only power Palpatine had is the Jedi's own weaknesses. Like it's their weakness to, um, to play the role that was given to them. I remember once Dr. Sherman Jackson, he said something really powerful. He said tradition has needs two things to survive. It needs constancy. It needs constancy. It needs a sense of reference and anchor. But it also needs change. If, if, if tradition changes without an anchor, it's no longer tradition. It's something else. But if, 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 if tradition um, is anchored and doesn't change, it's not going to survive. Right? Mm -hmm. it's not, it is not going to survive. And I think Luke sort of, even though he didn't live during the Jedi Order, he sort of, you know, figured out in, in The Last Jedi that no matter what he even could do by training Ben, um, uh, uh, his nephew, and, and, and trying to, uh, uh, to raise a new Jedi Order, that there is just something about the tradition itself in the way that it's taught that is not able to cope with the times anymore. And it doesn't matter how many times you repeat the same mistake, you're not going to get different results. Mm -hmm. And I think this is, yeah, I mean, you know, you can ask why did, why was Luke so frightened by Ben? Well, because he's seeing his own father. 
he's seeing his own self. I mean, he was so close. You can get it from the color choice because George Lucas was so conscious of the color choice that he gave to uh, characters. So in episode six, Luke is dressed in black. Right. I mean, he's he's this close. He's this close to 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 jumping in. And actually, in in the old canon, it was mentioned that after episode six, Luke opens a dark Jedi Academy where he utilizes the dark side of the force to train Jedi with the idea being that the only way you can um, lessen the attraction to the dark side is if you teach it, if you use it for the force of good to um to uh, uh, to the new to the new disciples to the Murids. That would bring the balance back, right? I mean, we're talking about the prophesized one bringing the balance back. You can't have balance if you're only using one side. Exactly. It brings to mind Carl Jung talking about the shadow self and how you have to engage with the oh shadow God, parts of your own self. That's a whole. That's a whole. I mean, you know, engage with your dark. What, what Palpatine? What Palpatine says to uh, to Anakin, and he says to Ben. Uh, in episode nine, that famous statement, the dark side of the forest is a pathway to many abilities some consider to be unnatural. Um, there is a statement by Ibn Arabi where he says, he says, from the darknesses of ignorance to the light of guidance and from the light of guidance to the darkness of perplexity. And the Prophet ﷺ has a hadith where he says that God Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has 70,000 veils of light and darkness. If he were to lift them, then the light of his countenance would burn everything that is in existence. So darkness has a place um, in the way that everything around us work. Ultimately, for a metaphysician, for a Sufi master, for a mystic like Ibn Arabi, everything is rooted in God. And everything we see around us, we can talk in terms of stories, all protagonists, all forces of good are rooted in divine jamal, in divine beauty. And all forces of evil, what we perceive as evil, what we perceive as darkness, is rooted in divine jalal. Because what is divine Jalal? It's the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we are not supposed to embody. And this is a key point here. Some people misunderstand, you know, what Ibn Arabi is talking about in Tawheed. And there is a famous story of a saint, uh, a murid who was studying with his sheikh and his sheikh was telling him, you know, everything in the universe is a manifestation of God. So this kid, he went to the desert and he saw a snake and he tried to grab it and it bit him. And then he was going to die, and then the sheikh came and was trying to heal him, and he was like, what happened? He was like, well, you said everything in the universe is a manifestation of God, and I saw a snake, and I wanted to touch it. He was like, you idiot. Some of his manifestations are names of Jalal. Your adab with those names is not to entertain them, is not to engage with them. So for me, answering Abbas's question, what is Star Wars a story of? I'm more inclined to think that Star Wars is a story of the Force. I think it's a story of the Force appearing and manifesting in various forms. Appearing in the form of, of Anakin, and even appearing in the story of Palpatine and Darth Plagueis the Wise. 
because we can say that you know as the prophet said actions are by their conclusions everything that palpatine did all of um, uh, uh, everything that he that all the misery that he unleashed on the universe on the galaxy ultimately culminated in the redemption of Anakin. Um, and mentioning that scene that you mentioned about the Toba of Anakin, of, of Darth Vader. So what's amazing is that in the script, in the Star Wars script, uh, throughout the script of episodes four, five, and six, Darth Vader, his lines are written as Darth Vader. But that last line where he says, my son you already have when he says i have to save you and he says my son you already have that line the 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 character is anakin skywalker so there is a reversion right there is a rebirth darth vader is 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 gone and now anakin anakin is reborn going back to this idea that star wars i believe it's the story of the force is that it's ultimately all about these characters, one after the other, one way or another, willingly or unwillingly, they become the medium of bringing balance back to the Force, um, just as they had brought imbalance to the Force. So Palpatine, after all, everything that he did, he was the medium through which Anakin became Darth Vader. And he was also the medium through which Darth Vader returned to, to Anakin. Because it was through his torture of Luke that he was going to kill Luke that he revived the heart of the father in Darth Vader and, and Anakin was reborn. It was actually Palpatine who did that. Palpatine is also the one who made um, Ben uh Ben Skywalker realize who he is. Um, and he made, what's her name? Ray recognize who she is, right? So Luke the same way. Luke went through this whole journey and ultimately everything goes back to the Force. Only trust in the Force. That was, that was the main advice that all the Jedi left to their murids, shall we say, after the purge. Uh, right before they die, they say, trust in no one but the Force. Only no trust in the Only Because that's ultimately where everything is going back to. I mean, trust only in the Force translates to inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raja'un. And for Ibn Arabi, this is not about physical death. This is about, so in his salawat, in his dua, he says, inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raja'un fi kulli halin wa maqamin. At every moment, the force, all forms around us are returning to equilibrium. There's a great relief, like a spiritual relief that comes from that. That no matter what happens, no matter what I do, no matter what life puts me through, ultimately we're all going back to the same place. The only difference is the route and the timing. That's, you know, I don't know which route I'm going to take. I don't know how long it'll take to get there. But the relief that comes from knowing that ultimately the force is everything and I'm just going to be one with the force with you. And uh, yeah, like, like Rogue One, I am one with the force and the force is one with me. Yes, right? exactly. It, it's like, 
it's like at the end of the day there is just the force you know like that's it it's finished so this is why for me I believe Star Wars is the story of the force and the reason I do that the reason I want to look at it that way is because then I can find I can find a place a redemptive place for people like Palpatine because I think that if you just dismiss Palpatine as absolute evil then it does not explain the fact that he was a catalyst in all of these various things that happened right that transpired um, he was playing his role in the grand scheme of things and ultimately everything you know or like that song by Enigma, Return to Innocence, right? Like everything just returns to innocence. And now, a quick word from this episode's sponsor. MashaAllah Halal Food Truck is an authentic Pakistani food truck serving halal hand-slaughtered food all across the East Bay. Their specialties include lamb korma, grilled chicken, and the ever-popular chicken tikka masala. Among their vegetarian options, they have chana masala and palak paneer. To stay up to date on where they are, follow MashaAllah Halal on Facebook, Instagram, and Yelp. So quick story time. I was digging into some of the roots of Star Wars and George Lucas when he was first getting into the Star Wars universe, late 60s, early 70s. And I found a really interesting connection that shows a possible inspiration from the Islamic world into the Star Wars universe. In the late 60s in Berkeley, there was an artist by the name of Daniel Moore, who's now known as Daniel Abdul Haymore after he accepted Islam. And he was a director of the Floating Lotus Magic Opera Company. Himself and other artists uh, went on to explore Eastern religions and then eventually accept Islam in a trip that they took to Morocco in 1970. After this, he had done the Hajj in early 1971 and had come back to the Bay Area for a small amount of time. This group is known as the Habibia, or as they call themselves, the Fukara, and their leader, their sheikh at the time, was fundraising for his second book, a book which would be a biography of the Prophet, peace be upon him. He sent members of his group to different directors, actors, and artists who he believed would be open to the Sufi cause. Now, at this point in time, George Lucas had put out a film called THX 1138. It wasn't huge in the box office. The mainstream didn't really take to it. And even to this day, the only following it's really had has been a bit more of a cult following. So that being said, the film did have a lot of spiritual undertones that inspired the Habibia to think that George Lucas would be amicable towards the Sufi cause and may donate for this fundraiser. Abdul Hay and Abdul Aziz Redpath were then sent to Skywalker Ranch to chat with George Lucas. And I believe at this time, I'm not sure if he was actually present there as well uh, at the time or not, but Joseph Campbell was also part of these conversations. They were exploring archetypes, spirituality, and a lot of the ideas of the Force, the Jedi Council, etc., came into play here. We heard a lot of similarities between the uh, Islamic perspective and the Star Wars perspective. But once I saw the way that the Jedi Council dressed, it, it's eerily similar to North African Sufi 
carb. And so after seeing the Jedi Council, how they dress and how they act, it was very easy for me to draw a conclusion that the North African style of Sufism and Sufi dress, chivalry, and that Sheikh Murid relationship is in fact uh, a major inspiration for George Lucas when he was creating the Jedi Council. And I thought this was really fun. It ties Bay Area into this, it ties in Abdul Hai, and it shows a, a very specific link between these universes and makes it more concrete. By the way, Chef Lisa, uh, did you know George Lucas was interested in a lot of the other Eastern faiths, but he actually spent special attention to Sufism through not only this, these discussions, but other discussions he had right before the first film came out? I didn't know that he was so interested in Sufism. George Lucas, I didn't know that. But I mean, it makes sense because it definitely translates into his work. But I just thought maybe it was a coincidence of, you know, of a spiritual thought or maybe mindful thought. But that's really amazing. Seriously. I'm excited, man. So the reason why I bring up Star Wars is because in one of the episodes or a few, a couple of different episodes um, in the Mandalorian, you see baby Yoda, who's now known as Grogu, drinking bone broth out of a bowl. Okay. (laughs) And this sort of very iconic scene where, you know, Mando's beating up some guy as as Mando does. Yeah. And baby Yoda's just chilling in the background, just sipping on bone Just sipping, just sipping. (laughs) You know, so the show is called The Artistic Foodies. We're going to talk a lot about Star Wars, but I also want to talk a little bit about some of the food in the show. Sure. And so I picked bone broth. Um... Uh, I've been just absolutely crazy about bone broth this entire 2020. Um, I know it has so many good things for for health. And, you know, I hope to also share my my own recipe, which I started using the Instant Pot and it just gels so well. Yeah. Um, So I'd love to know just to hear from you as a chef, as someone who's made bone broth and sold bone broth. What is bone broth? What are the benefits? Why should everyone be excited about it? Good question. I mean, honestly, bone broth is something that's considered nurturing and healing to the gut lining, um, as well as um, giving you properties of um, gelatin and um, suddenly I can't remember the name, the collagen. These are all things that our body needs to, um, to keep moving. And uh, a lot of times we've cooked our foods in ways that we're not even benefiting from God-given sources. Um, Like I said, the gelatin, the collagen, you've got the nutrients that um, the body needs and and works well with. It helps the gut lining to repair. Um, You know, there's schools of thought, like from the GAPS diet, where you start off basically just drinking bone broth to help heal your gut lining so you don't have a quote-unquote leaky gut, which is something many of us have and we're just not even aware of it. But um, the other part of it is that I think like it's a very soothing food, not just nourishing, but I feel like sitting and sipping on bone broth feels very soothing to the calming of the nervous system. That's another thing that we don't focus on often enough is our nervous systems and in any day you know there's a lot of stress but today's day it's even more right than we can even imagine and our 
our fight or flight is doing its thing all on its own. And we don't realize that we're getting caught up in the process of fight or flight and we just become part of the flight and we're just living in the flight and we're not taking the time to calm down. So having some really hot beverage in your hand that's tasty too, you can really take a moment and do almost like a sipping meditation with your bone broth, right? And really feel how your body feels when you're drinking it. So that's another aspect of, it's almost like why tea is so calming, right? When people want to calm down, they get a cup of tea um, and sit down and, and sip it and feel the warmth going down your throat. So that's also really important. Um, how do you make it? It's really a very simple process that just takes a lot of patience. And so getting bones from healthy animals, which is extremely important in this process, and, and the one negative part that I will mention at the end of this conversation once you procure those bones, uh, you want to put them in a pot and add any aromatics to your liking. I mean, none of them really make a difference in the quality and in that, you know, it's not like, you know, we're really focused on the bones in this, in this instance, but carrots, celery, onion, parsley stems, garlic, um, and, and bay leaf, uh, peppercorns, um, you know, you could add other warming spices if you really were, were looking for that flavor. But before you start cooking, you have to give it time with acid. And that acid of choice is uh, apple cider vinegar. And so you take a few tablespoons of that acid and put it in into the water, the cold water, the aromatics and the bones, and you let it sit for a half an hour to allow for that process to occur, occur to allow the bones to release and, and start to give out um, all that they have. And then you turn the heat on very slow and just allow it to go for as long as you want. And it's just slow simmer for 12 hours. Some people do 24 hours. And you can also add, you know, different herbs. I, I know that, um, my my son and daughter-in-law, they used to add astragalus, which is a, a healing herb. And there's so many other herbs that you could add to your bone broth to add extra benefit, you know, to your health. And you just let that go and strain it and, uh, and just enjoy it. The other thing that's really fun about bone broth is let's say you're roasting a chicken for dinner. You can save all of those bones and put them in and start a new bone broth. So you like have two meals just from one roast chicken, just as an example. So there's just so much that you can get from bone broth. It's amazing that you mentioned the sort of ritual of drinking it. And one thing that I have definitely enjoyed since I started making bone broth is the ritual of making it. Absolutely. It's, it's I think making food in general it should be a ritual. You know, like the other day I was, I had some pomegranates that I was gifted and I just sat down in a chair and started cracking them open and just one by one taking every little, you know, pomegranate seed out. It was so meditative and we have to, we have to get back to that in the kitchen, more mindful. I mean, it's again, it's so reflective of our of our dean. It's it's everything that that we've been taught. Just imagine how mindful that one must be in order to say Bismillah before eating. It takes a lot of mindfulness because 
a lot of times you were so focused on just being hungry or getting it over, getting done with food to get on to the next thing. And I mean, we all get caught up in that, but ultimately we're not benefiting from, from, from that food to the degree that we would if we were to really sit mindfully and start the process. Even like you said, from this, the point of cooking it all the way to consuming it, um, I'm sure we'd eat less. Um, there was a time where I had an experience in a, in a retreat where uh, it was a Buddhist uh, monastery. And so we couldn't speak for the first 15 minutes of eating. And so you walked in silently, you took the plate and put your food on it in a, <clears throat> in a buffet style. And when you sat down, you started to eat and you were literally just with yourself in those moments and your food. And I tell you, when, when we're eating intentionally with food in front of us and intentionally not speaking or, or being, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Like it's entertained by the TV or our phone. You get to the point where you, you can feel your body eating and something we've really stopped doing is connecting with the way that our bodies eat and how we feel during that process. And I always, I think I did it for three days straight. And every time I realized I was putting way more food on my plate than my body needed. And when I was conscious of eating and seeing the food, I realized that I was full like halfway through. So think of all the extra food that we're consuming unnecessarily so, right? They say that the you know the stomach, the vessel, the Prophet gives us that advice that it should be a third full of food, a third full of water, and a third full of air. But how often do we allow our stomachs to have a third full of air in it in order to digest our food correctly? Right. Absolutely. And there's so much benefit that we could have in that. And then, you know, overeating as well as leaky gut, like you mentioned, there's so much that that could be improved upon in general. And right. I, I find for me, my meditation, my bone broth meditation starts when I'm at the farmer's market picking out which veggies are going to go in there. Yeah. And that's so important too. Like, like I posted recently, not that recent, but you know, we got into that pandemic routine of just like getting into the grocery store, bringing our groceries in. It's, you know, less off. I mean, as less often as possible in order to not get exposed right in the beginning. And you suddenly started to feel so disconnected from your food. And, And then I had the opportunity to go to a farmer's market and it just opened up my senses new again. It it was a combination of seeing everything, but also becoming aware of the season because you could see like there were two seasons. It was summer and fall coming together. And you were very aware of that through the produce. And we just need those experiences. It's a part of eating. It's a part of the the, the whole process that we we should be going through. And we've cut out so many of those pieces. And we wonder why, you know, we're all messed up. (laughs) There's many reasons for it. The the other thing that I did want to add is there's a group of people who have found and they were doing tests on bone broth. So the one negative thing that can happen is heavy metals are in the bones and stored in the bones of the animals as well as they are stored in our bodies. And so when you're cooking bones for a long period of time, 
if those bones, most bones do have heavy metals in them from, from their life. And so like from the water they drank, from the food they ate, from the medication they were given. And so uh, you can then get that extra heavy metal content in your bone broth. And that's unfortunately sometimes can be a, a real head, like the opposite of good, right? I can't get the words out. It's really a dangerous thing. We have to be careful of all the different things that we're ingesting and, and we're exposing our bodies to. And you have to look at it like a cup. There's only so much toxin that our cups can hold until they start to overflow. So I'm really focusing my, my year on detox and understanding that the body on its own does a beautiful job of it. Like it really does everything we need our body to do to be clear of toxins, but the body only has a certain amount of time to be able to do that and manage a certain amount. So two things to keep in mind is one, lessen the toxic burden that you're putting in. And some of it's unavoidable. Some of it's like just breathing the air outside, right? When we have these wildfires, we are breathing in toxins that we are, we can't even imagine what kind of toxin we're breathing in and our body has to process it out. So first is eliminating as much burden as you can through how you choose to buy your fruits and vegetables and your meats and how you're, what type of water you're drinking. When you take breaks out of the city and go into nature where the clean air is, you know, helping the lungs to filter out the garbage, but then also giving your body space to let go of those toxins and giving some of us and most of us need little pushes. It doesn't mean that the body's not doing it, but sometimes we need, again, drinking water. Like we, are we drinking enough water? Are we giving our body enough fluid to wash out our organs and put, push things out of us? Are we going to the bathroom often enough? You know, as Muslims, I know we're afraid of like making wudu in the middle of the day, but like, it's a really strange conversation to have, but like you got to let, yeah. I'm just saying you got to be careful of not holding in toxins in the body just because it's not helpful, you know, for your, for your, <laughs> you know, like you're out and about. So I know that sounds really strange, but it's really real. Like we got to let our bodies do their job and we have to assist our bodies to do their job. So on one end, bone broth is a really beautiful intentional food as long as we're really careful with the animals that we're using for our bone broth. Absolutely. And since the process really concentrates everything, it just puts the importance. So, I mean, that's why I always get, you know, when I'm getting veggies, when I'm getting herbs for the broth, you know, I'm not getting it from a grocery store. I'm going to the farmer's market, you know, like where can I source the best stuff? So, you know, with, with bones, it's the same thing. You want this animal to be well treated. You want it to the animal to be on a good diet because that's going to reflect in what's in your bone broth as well. Because I love bone broth and I have not, you know, I'll be drinking it so, some days. I'll just be, you know, a, a cup of warm bone broth. It's just very like I feel like yeah. every organ in my body Soothing. is getting a warm 
warm a hug from this bone broth. And then even, you know, even in my cooking, any, if I'm making dal, I'm going to throw some bone broth in there. I don't care. Sure. If I'm making a karaya, I'm just going to add a little bit of bone broth. Like it's in everything that I make, you know, yeah. I, I make kanji with that bone broth. I, mm-hmm. And it's kind of weird because, you know, you can't make a small batch of bone broth. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you can, but why, why would you? <laughs> like go through, you go through all that trouble right, and spend all you? those hours to make like one cup of bone broth doesn't really make sense. So yeah, you know, the, the, the most re after my most recent bone broth making, I did three batches over three days, over two days actually. And so now I have like 40 cups of bone broth in my freezer. Mashallah. Mashallah. May it nourish your whole family, inshallah. So that's that, that Baba Shams blend bone broth. <laughs> I'm waiting for it. <laughs> <laughs> so alhamdulillah. And like you said, the, the um, adding a little bit of acid really makes a difference. It pulls everything from the bones. Right. And, you know, I've been using Instant Pot. I did the, uh, on, I did the stovetop for, for a very long time where I would just, you know, let it go overnight. Yeah. And then uh, one night it was a tad too high. So in the middle of the night, oh. all the water evaporated and oh, all the I'm stuff sorry. scorched. And oh, at man. the bottom, everything was burnt. And there was just like, you know, it was like a centimeter of burnt stuff on the bottom of the pot. So unfortunately, we had to lay that pot to rest. I was going to uh, say, I mean, trying to clean that seems almost impossible. <laughs> you know, we tried, but, you know, my my big brother has been laid to rest. <laughs> oh, man. R.I.P. Um, R.I.P. So, you know, shout out to the parents uh, who had an instant pot laying around that they don't use. And so now... <laughs> You know, I'm on this, I'm on this brand new lifestyle of you could just plug it in. You come back four hours later and your broth is done. No, it's amazing. Absolutely. And I can't, I can't thank you enough for, for joining us on the Artistic Foodies, for sharing your thoughts. And uh, I really just really look forward to all the future conversations we're going to have as well. I always gain a lot from them. I feel the same way. I look forward to and I appreciate everything you're doing. And now, as promised, the special Baba Shams bone broth recipe. Uh, I make this recipe a lot. I always like to have some of this bone broth on hand in the freezer, and I'm always posting my Instagram. If you have an Instant Pot, this is how you do it. And just get two to three pounds of beef bones. You want to clean them by boiling them for five minutes and then rinsing them off. This helps get a lot of the this come out of there, a lot of the blood out of there. You don't want that stuff. Once it's cleaned, Uh, Throw it in your Instant Pot with at least a tablespoon of apple cider vinegar. I like to add carrots, parsnips, leeks, onions, ginger, and garlic as my veggies, but you could could really play around with it. There's a lot of different things you could add. Uh, Depending on how you want it to be uh, flavored, I like mine's a little bit more spiced, so I'll put star anise, cinnamon, bay leaf, black peppercorns, cloves, cardamom, cumin. Throughout the whole cooking, it's going to pick up all of those delicious flavors. Then I just put that on high pressure for about three and a half hours in the Instant Pot, let that naturally release the pressure. Then I strain it. Once it's cooled down enough, I put it in the fridge, probably overnight. That allows all the fat at the top to solidify and harden, making it easier for you to remove it. And then boom, that is the Baba Shams bone broth. That is what I always have on hand. You could drink it by the mug, you can put it in your cooking, forget about it. And I really hope that you guys try this out because this is something that's so easy to make. And if you don't have an Instant Pot, just keep it at a low simmer for like 20 hours. 
Yeah, that's why it's easier to have an instant pot. And then there you go. You're done. You're a bone broth maker. Congratulations. That was a great recipe. I'm going to try to make some bone broth tonight. This episode included select sound bites from our interviewees with our guest. To cast the full interviews, to get more in-depth with them, check out our bonus content on our website, theartisticfoodies.com. As always, thank you so much for tuning in to The Artistic Foodies. Before we go, please show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to find The Artistic Foodies on Facebook and Instagram to stay tuned for more episodes as well as bonus content. You can also have access to all our episodes on our website, theartisticfoodies.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Halal Fest Incorporated and Gamma, gathering almost the Mars.